The Guardian. There's been a huge surge of letters and emails from party members saying that they wanted a diverse group of people running in this leadership contest. And I think David Miliband and others responded to the feelings of the membership. Diane Abbott's late scramble onto the pitch has at last added some zing to the most open Labour leadership contest for years. This is Politics Weekly and I'm Alec Stratton, he's Tom Clark. Joining us this week to chew over the politics we have Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee and The Observer's commentator Raphael Baer. Now, the woman who's nursing this election as acting Labour leader is Harriet Harman. Michael White caught up with her yesterday. All the nominations are in. It's clear who's nominated. We've got a great team of excellent candidates. And the thing about this election, and it's going to run all the way till the 25th of September, so I don't think they'll be having much by the way of summer holidays, but they'll be campaigning right throughout the summer. It's going to see our membership grow up, go up. It's going to see debate generated in the party. And you know, at the end of it, four million people will get a ballot paper. It's the biggest election bar none, except for the general election. I'm an unreconstructed bloke, but even I can see that Diane Abbott's presence lifts the event as an event, because she's different from the other four, isn't that right? I think they're all different from each other, and I think the party has got a really, uh, you know, it's a hard choice ahead of them. You're a loyal trooper, thank you. Tom, we were at the first of the hustings last night in a cavernous yet packed church hall. It was pretty good, wasn't it? It was really much better than I'd expected and much more interesting than the kind of dull stuff we've seen between Labour people in recent years, such as the deputy leadership election, which I bet no one can remember I'm very remember much. I really well, actually. Oh, well, you're you, Allegra. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, my thought, uh, and I don't know what you think, Polly, is that the arrival of Diane Abbott for all the issues with her is, uh, is, is really opening this thing up. Absolutely. It gives life and entertainment to something that looked dangerously dull. I don't think it would have been dull, actually, but she certainly adds a huge amount of spice to it. She also adds a lot of edge. Uh, There are some commentators rather on the right of the party saying she's a dangerous addition because she will pull all the others to the left and risks making whoever wins that much less electable. I think that's probably not so, but I can see that as we've got all these months ahead of us, that it may be that she does make the running and she gets all the applause and they cheered and clapped yesterday for her most of all. Mm. Maybe it will pull the others leftwards. No bad thing in my mind. Raph, can we get this token thing decided on one way or the other? She was backed by people like David Miller and Phil Willis, Jack Straw, people who would never, ever have imagined that in 2010 they'd be backing Diane Abbott. Does it matter that she couldn't get on the ballot herself and they sort of rallied round? Well, I think it matters to the extent that we saw... We, we, everyone came to more, a greater understanding of how the Labour Party rules work and that it did seem perverse that with obviously a diminished band of MPs, it makes it that much harder to find the nominations. I think it matters that the party seems somehow collectively to have decided that they wanted a wider range of candidates and that's what we've got. So it's got to be a good outcome. And I mean, I'd agree with Polly that it makes perfect sense now that you will have at least positions articulated, which when Labour in government were just never being expressed properly and that the people who are in the Labour cabinet were never able or forced to engage with properly. And that's got to be a good outcome for the party and for whoever wins the election. Rafe, we're all talking about um, 
positions, good to have these positions expressed. But mm. there's a certain hedging going on here, isn't there? I mean, well, in case they actually become what Labour happens Party if she policy? actually won? She's your MP, right? What, what, I mean, what, what I am one of Diane happen? Abbott's constituents, and well, first of all, from a non-partisan point of view, if she won, that would be the decision of the Labour Party. She would be the Labour Party leader, and that would be the democratic outcome. Now. I haven't heard enough about where she would actually want to lead the party to know whether or not that would be a good thing. I get a sense that I think it probably wouldn't be the best thing for the Labour Party in being chosen, its chances of being chosen by the country to form a government. But I take your point that this idea that we have to have these ideas expressed so that we can say that we've done it and absorbed it. But there's another side to that, which is that the reason we're having that conversation is because it felt for a long time, for a lot of people, I think, in the Labour Party, that essentially policy was some combination of Peter Mandelson and Alistair Campbell in a room, uh, both at the beginning and at the end, deciding what the Labour Party was and what it represented. And that's now over. And again, that's got to be a good thing. I mean, one thing I thought you could already see last night, and in some ways the headline for me from last night, was that it forced the two Millibands to distinguish themselves a bit more. Here's a little clip that sums it up. It's David. If I thought that Ed would be a better leader of the opposition or a better prime minister, I'd be running his campaign. But I think that the... <laughs> Allegra, if I thought you'd be a better presenter of Politics <laughs> Weekly. No, uh, quite seriously, you do admit uh, like, th- they're moving, aren't they? And this is, this is, as Polly was saying, it might move to the candidates to the left. It's already happening with Ed. Well, I was talking to someone who works for Ed's team afterwards and there's, they were genuinely scratching their head about whether Diane going in the race was good for them or bad for them. Could be bad for him because it, it means that he can't be distinguish himself. He loses distinction as the left-wing candidate. But last night that was not a problem because he, you, you felt it more than me because I've been at all these things they've been saying and some of the stuff he'd said before, but for you it stuck, stuck out that he talked about Trident. He'd suggested that it was not necessarily the most affordable thing to be doing, which none of the others conceded apart from Diane and that becomes a mistake I thought it was the biggest thing he sort of has said that before, hasn't he? He sort of has said that before, sort but it's of, sort, of, sort of. Well, I mean, that's the, that is going to be the problem. We've got another, we've got scores of these things left. And so we're going to be, the, you know, each sentence we're going to be combing through for whether it's a kind of shift or not. But so th- I mean, the, the thing that was really remarkable, I wish you to have been there. During that clip, Ed was shaking his head. Um, during other, other moments, David was wagging his finger and desperate to come in to attack his brother, not to attack any <laughs> of the others. And I think, I think it's kind of, I think it's been quite a shock to both of the brothers. Uh, Polly, is, is, it, is it noticeable to you whether there's distinction between the two yet? I think they are very different. Uh, but I do think that there's a lot of disquiet around. I mean, you just find that, you know, ordinary punters, not just we politicos, um, saying there's something very odd about this family. Yeah. I mean, couldn't couldn't their mother have knocked their heads together and said, right, you can have the fight right here on the sitting room carpet now if you want. <laughs> Roll on the floor and punch each other, but only one of you is going to come out of this and the other one is going to support them. Uh, I think if most people looking at their families, looking at their own siblings, kind of wince and go, oh, my God, if it was us, how would this be? And the idea that they can go through all these months being just kind of ordinary loving brothers, love comes first. Oh, no, it doesn't. Politics comes first. Yes, yeah, so what's the expression? If you want a friend in politics, get a dog. I mean, I think the one, <laughs> not a brother. One thing that we have to remember about this, though, is obviously that the, the job, there's leader of the Labour Party and it's also leader of the opposition. And it's leader of the opposition against the government that in coalition has what 60 seat majority could be four, five, well, five years if the fixed term stands. And that's a very difficult gig. You take it on. You've just lost. 
you it's very difficult to articulate positions without repudiating your legacy that you also want to somehow defend and salvage. And when we think about David Cameron, I mean, one of his greatest political achievements was to survive four years as leader of the opposition in a sort of 24-7 aggressive media culture. So the person who wins this election might very well not ever be prime minister. And mm. it's that's, you know, for those of us who take a very profound interest in what happens in the Labour Party, it's all great fun. For the vast majority of people, this is absolute sideshow. This is down a back alley of politics and it's government that matters. But just, to, just, just on that, do you think that's why both brothers are in? Because there's a feeling it's now or never. I think that. And also I think for the precise reason that in a way so little is at stake, it's sort of you put your hat in the ring, you do it, you have a go, you might be leader of the opposition, you might next time it's sort of taking place in the... It's not the main stage. But this time, it's different because I I would absolutely agree that on the whole, on past form, this person who wins will be Moses. They won't actually reach the promised land. This will be the rubbish job to have. But you just don't know with the coalition because we're in such uncharted territory. You know, we've just had Simon Hughes elected as as deputy head of the Lib Dems. We don't know how long this coalition is going to stick together. I can see a scenario just as well where after next April's budget and the cuts really come in then, about three months after that, the great swathe of public sector jobs, people actually lose their jobs and go. They, They work out their leave for three months and then they've gone by next autumn I think the coalition could come under, unstuck under the pressure of, say, another million very angry, upset public servants out of work, the sorts of people who organise and make a big noise. At which point Nick Clegg's trying to have his referendum on AV and either it's getting no purchase across the country or it's very clear to him that he's been stitched up by the Tory, as he would put it, vested interests. And the enormous, and the enormous danger for whoever becomes leader of the Labour Party then is that you will have a very radical populist voice coming from the trade union movement that is essentially usurping that voice from whoever as leader of the Labour Party. Uh, one thing in terms of voting reform that really disappointed about last night is that none of the five candidates were prepared to back proportional representation and they were all talking as if they were... Um, Polly's gonna... <laughs> failing or may not failing um, And they, they were all talking as if Labour could somehow now had the chance to go back to being a sort of majority party, which, of course, I don't think it's ever been in its history. I mean... This is sort of denial, isn't it, Polly? Well, I suppose in practical politics, you look at the state of the Labour Party and its tribal backward dinosaur elements that they've got to win, not just the trade union votes, but a hell of a lot of those members out there who fought Lib Dems tooth and claw for years and hate their guts. Maybe you couldn't win the leadership on anything other than saying, well, we'll go for the AV referendum because it was in our manifesto, but no further than that. It doesn't mean they might not budge later on. I suspect that the Milibans are both actually PR people uh, if they got the chance. But there's not no particular point standing up for something that A, is not going to happen and B, ain't going to win you the leadership. Yeah, but they kind oh. of said they were against it. It was almost worse well, than It was that, worse because Andy Burnham went first and he did a little riff on in praise of First Past the Post. But, but Burnham <laughs> and, then... and Abbott both said, uh, in terms of even if we go to AV... It, it would depend on a calculation of self-interest for the Labour Party. Well, Abbott does come from that real dinosaur part of the Labour Party, let's face it. And the reason she's not very popular and she couldn't get 33% is that she comes from the most antediluvian part of mm. the Labour Party that has never budged on anything like that, is totally tribal. I mean, the campaign group really is yesteryear writ large. And that's why she couldn't get the support. And although she's charming and fun and, 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 and going to liven up the whole debate, we've got to remember that she didn't get support for very good reasons. <laughs> Very Speaking quick. as a Hackney citizen, I would say that very specifically in her constituency, 
essentially the competition is between Diane and not Diane, and that is how people vote. And so in an alternative vote situation, she would be in trouble. Now, there are, of course, two other candidates that we've not been talking about much yet, Ed Balls and Andy Burnham. Do you think either of them has got a distinctive position they might be able to draw out? I think Ed Balls has probably got a distinctive position that he doesn't want, which is <laughs> um, as you know, Gordon's number two. I think I haven't yet understood how he's going to articulate something other than a, a, a defence of, of that position and how he's going to well, emancipate he's himself. doing this stuff that. with immigration, isn't he? Trying to sort of suggest a connection to the Labour heartlands that, that, that went missing. I've, I've never heard Ed Balls articulate or really say anything in a public forum that to me didn't and this is going to sound slightly critical of Ed Balls I'm afraid but it didn't to me reek of the most cynical political posturing that was required (laughs) at that particular moment and perhaps that's a a harsh misjudgment of Ed Balls but that's my impression again last night he sought to clarify the difference between the anti-war difference between himself and Ed Miliband and didn't he Tom he tried to and he really sort of spent three or four minutes establishing quite an unpopular thing in the room which is that actually he had admitted that he was in favour of the war at the time he took the time to establish that he was not on the side of the audience and that was quite for me quite a key I, I think he, I think I think we shouldn't underestimate him. I, well, I think we. Uh, I think coming out of last night, I estimate him much less than I did before because he was doing something quite crafty and cunning, which was trying to say, "Hey, whatever you think about me, at least you know where you stand." Whereas Ed Miliband, ooh, look at him flipping and flopping on on the war. But that's the kind of thing that would be better done in the kind of newspaper briefing, which um, you know, Ed's not kind of unfamiliar with. You've hit that. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head because what this is going to be about, particularly if this leader is only going to be the leader of the Labour Party and not the Prime Minister, is how you do politics and how Labour sees itself, how it reinvents itself, how it reorganises itself. Well, if you look at the way Ed Balls does politics, we know he is of the Charlie Whelan, McBride, Damien McBride school of politics. And if he were to win, it would be entirely through him managing to wind up the old machine that is really the part of Labour that needs most reform. Now, what was not discussed at all in any way, shape or form, except for in response to a question and then they flannelled was the deficit and how they would bring it down. David Cameron, however, has been getting on with the job of government and he chose Milton Keynes campus of the Open University to set out his thoughts on Britain's gaping budget deficit and how the coalition will seek to reduce it. There are three simple reasons why we have to deal with the country's debts. One, the more the government borrows, the more it has to repay. The more it has to repay the more lenders worry about getting their money back. And the more lenders start to worry, the less confidence there is in our economy. Two, investors, people lending us this money, they don't have to put their money in Britain. They will only do so if they are confident that the economy is being run properly. And if confidence in our economy is hit, we run the risk of higher interest rates. Three, And the real human everyday reason that this is the most urgent problem facing Britain is that higher interest rates hurt every family and every business in our land. Now, uh, Raf, once again, we've got this rhetoric from the government, but for all the talk this week, neither George Osborne nor David Cameron have told us anything about where the axe is going to fall. I mean, we're being softened up, but for what? Are you any clearer? Uh, I'm not, actually. I mean, we know... I would hazard a guess that the 
the big areas of spending where you that aren't ring fenced, where you need to really can really strip out big chunks of money is at the Department for Work and Pensions. And there will be, you know, it'll be welfare and benefits. That's going to be a big area of cuts because there's a lot of money there and it hasn't been sort of pointed out there's something that must be saved so that would be one guess but no have they have they expressed that clearly no i mean i think it's very interesting hearing that clip of david cameron there that in his three-pronged defense of aggressive deficit cutting he didn't actually mention uh growth in the economy um which i thought was quite a, a stark omission and because what we've actually had you know, well, something that hasn't really been discussed adequately in this debate, I think, is the difference between a stimulus package and a bailout. And we had a bailout, but we haven't really had a proper stimulus. And what they're now doing is cutting away when I'm yet to be persuaded that actually the investment and the money that has been spent has done enough to foster the growth that most rational economists think will be the likeliest way to get the revenue you need to cover the deficit. There's an argument there for, for Labour to make, but if it is right, and um, I think that's that's a, a good point, that like welfare and pensions looks like the thing to go for, um, might they take a lesson, um, Polly, from Peter Lilly, who said in the 1990s, cutting a billion pounds off the welfare budget is easy, as long as you tell me which million families you're going to take £20 a week off. Exactly. I think that people look at it. Also, they lie about it because a lot of those Tories have come out and said, do you realise in this walloping sum, if they actually said the biggest proportion of that is old age pensions, do you wish to cut that? Everybody go, oh, no, no, absolutely not. So they always lump together things that you can't do anything with. Can you cut the dole to less than £64 a week? No, I don't think anybody would think you can do that. So where are these huge savings? On the contrary, this bill is going to soar massively. I mean, if the report is right from the um, Institute of, of Employment this week, we can expect at least another three quarters of a million people on the dole. That's what happens in recessions. It's going to soar up. That will multiply the recessionary effect. It'll probably have a knock-on effect on yet more people losing their jobs. I mean, you don't have to be a raving lefty. There are, you know, look at Martin Wolf writing mm. in the Financial Times and Samuel Britton day after day, sending out the alarm, which comes from the American Treasury as well, saying what Europe is doing now is disastrous. This is the 1930s all over again. Everybody cutting in unison, everybody hoping that, that they're somehow going to export magically to one another when everybody else is cutting. This is exactly what happened in the 1930s. We know it. It's a textbook case and nobody is stopping and it. Crucially, Angela Merkel's led the way and, you know, David Cameron's right there. Well, crucially, his second point there about interest rates was quite interesting. I mean, he talks about the fear of, of interest rates going up. And that's because I think a lot of the, his core constituency will be paying mortgages and they'll be hoping that, that the cost of servicing that won't go up. But actually, in a situation where you're threatened by deflation, then that having monetary policy that works, rate, jacking up interest rates is the least of your worries. So it's a very, I mean, and the way he expressed it there, it's it's actually a very parochial and crude view that tries to turn managing a national economy into onto the level of the household budget. And I don't know whether he genuinely believes that, in which case he's just wrong, or whether he's doing it cynically to persuade people that his policy is the right one at the level that he thinks they might understand in which case it's slightly patronising isn't there a point here i mean there's the, the first obvious thing he's trying to do is is soften everyone up blame gordon brown and all of that but isn't there something else he's trying to do here which is to say to his own right wing yes i'm being severe yes i'm being tough yes i'm going to cut lots of things so actually he can soften them up for what are going to be big tax rises in a week and a half's time 
Well, I don't know about the big tax rises. I mean, I suppose we're going to see VAT. VAT. That's true. Everybody's kind of discounted that. They've sort of accepted that that's going really? to happen. Well, I think so. There'll be a token fuss about it. The interesting thing about VAT is, although it's very regressive, very unfair, hits the poorest most and so on, it's the tax that people mind least. They mind most things like council tax, which is a smidgen of what most people pay in tax, and yet people are incensed by even small rises in that. People's attitude towards tax is very irrational, mm. and it's been proved time and time again. VAT kind of works. It, it, it hurts the wrong people, but people complain least. Polly, can I just ask you about Lord Miners, who's Labour's former city minister? Um, He said this week that there was nothing progressive or socially democratic about running up a large deficit. It's the first it's the first whimper that we've had from Labour about how they what they think about bringing down the deficit. Uh, yeah, I, I'm utterly shocked by Miners. Presumably he's rowing his way back into the old world that he came from when he used to run, uh, you know, funds for the city. I was quite shocked by that because, in fact, as city minister, he was rather good and rather radical and rather good at taking on the city. But now he seems to be falling back amongst his old thieves of yesteryear. Um, I was disappointed in that what he said made sense. I mean, he's quite right. There isn't, There was nothing social democratic or progressive about running up a structural deficit when what Gordon Brown should have done in the good times is to tax and of course you know that we needed to spend more the spending was justified but uh, Gordon Brown never dared tax the opposite he cut income tax by 3p well you know that we should of course be putting that back now well Cameron can do good doom and gloom but he's not above a little bit of raw populism too have a listen to him here at Prime Minister's Questions thank you Mr Speaker I'm, I'm pleased to uh, tell my honourable friend that I've had those um, conversations there was some question that this was going to have a, a cost impact but I've managed to cut through that and I can say at no additional cost to the taxpayer the flag of St George will fly above Downing Street during the World Cup yeah! <laughs> Polly is it still the Conservative and Unionist Party what are the Scots going to make of this? I don't think they'll like it very much. I don't think they'll like anything about Cameron very much or about the cuts that are coming down the line. I always thought that, uh, you know, a, a Conservative win at this particular point is a gift to the Scott Nats. And we'll have to see whether in that, indeed he does carry out his threats to change the Barnet formula, the amount of money the Scots get, which is a little bit more per capita than other people in Britain get. And if he does, I, you know, I think the union does become somewhat more imperiled. Raf, do we have one above Guardian HQ? Uh, not that I've seen. I mean, I'll just say in response to that. I mean, you'd never have guessed that there was a former editor of the News of the World in charge of communications at that <laughs> That is it for this week. Thanks to Polly Toynbee and Raphael Baer. The producer was Phil Maynard. Thanks for listening.